What a blessing already tonight. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles tonight. Let's continue in our action-packed series through the book of Acts where we are considering what it actually means to be a church in action. So I ask you to join me in Acts. (laughs) Book of Acts tonight, we're in chapter 2. We've already spent five weeks considering the day of Pentecost, and we'll continue to do so tonight. Just remember that Pentecost means 50th, so we are now 50 days from the Passover. These believers have been waiting in Jerusalem just as Jesus commanded them. They're waiting to be endued with power from on high. They are waiting to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And we've seen how that when they were all in one place, in one accord, then God came in and filled the room and crowded them out. Then appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire, and the Spirit gave them utterance. Or we would say the Spirit gave them the ability to speak effectively. And they spoke with other tongues. With that, let's read verses 5 through 21. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia in Egypt and in parts of Libya about Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And there's no sense in reading further. That's as far as we'll get. I forgot to change my notes again this week. Last week we covered verses 5 through 7. And if you missed it, you really need to go back and listen to it. I don't have time to recap all of the details. And I can tell you tonight's going to kind of be a bunch of little observations. It may come across as disjointed, but I did my best. Remember in the Great Commission, Jesus commanded His disciples that they were to go into every nation and preach and teach Christ. And we know that God wanted the gospel to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. We see God's providence here in the book of Acts because when the gospel is going to be preached with great utterance here on the day of Pentecost, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God chose a day when all nations would be present. And all these nations would be represented by Jews. We then considered how God chose to use these look-down-upon Galileans to confound these wise, devout Jews who were dwelling in Jerusalem out of every nation under heaven. Remember that the Galileans were different in all ways. They were different politically, economically, linguistically, and educationally from their brethren in Jerusalem and in Judea. The devout Jews would have considered the Galileans unsophisticated and unlearned. The contrast between the Galileans and the devout Jews is really what makes this day so unique in Jerusalem. 
Remember that the Jews were confounded, then they were amazed, and then they marveled at what was taking place. How could these men with such strange-sounding accents be able to all of a sudden speak different languages perfectly as if they were born in that nation? And when it talks about them speaking in another language, if you, if you look at the Greek, it's talking about them being able to speak in their dialect. This was more than just, you know, fumbling their way around a language. They, they were preaching like they were from there and from a locality and, and had this dialect even down in it. It amazed these men who were there listening to this. Remember, these tongues weren't needed for these men to understand the message being preached. They would have been fluent in Hebrew. They would have been fluent in the language of their homeland like many are overseas today even. These devout men, they, they knew both of these languages, but God, taking these learned men, He was confounding their wisdom by using the foolish things of this world. And He, confi- he confounds the wise so that no flesh can glory in His presence. And the emphasis last week really was this. You may not be the most educated. You may not come from the great greatest places of prominence. You may not have the best pedigree, but God can use any who are willing to be used. He places His treasure in earthen vessels. May we all be vessels meet for the Master's use. Where the Holy Spirit can work mightily through us to reach others for Christ. And like I said, if you missed it, you really need to listen. There are a lot of finer details I can't recap. But I think it would be an encouragement if you did. Now, the charismatics of our day have really taken this issue of tongues and confused a whole lot of people. It's led to one of the most abused teachings there is. But in Acts chapter 2, there is to be no doubt as to what is meant by speaking in tongues. It's not hard to understand what tongues mean here because it's clear that tongues and languages are being used interchangeably. In verse 4, they began to speak in other tongues, and in verse 6, every man heard them speak in their own language. Therefore, tongues are languages. And in verse 8, they heard them speak in their own tongue where they were born, which has to mean the language of their homeland, because next we get all these countries and places listed for us. And even by the time you get to 1 Corinthians, there's no need to make this jump that tongues all of a sudden mean some strange gibberish. So we shouldn't attempt to complicate the issue by forcing the Scripture to say something it doesn't. And there definitely should not be anything in doctrine that is to suggest that in order for you to prove that you are now in Christ, you have to speak in an unknown tongue or something like that. Don't worry, I'm not going to do a study on tongues. It's obvious what is meant here. I do think it's noteworthy how our King James translators understood the term tongues to mean languages because they're the ones who chose to use the word tongue when they translated it. So if we understand what they meant, it'll help us understand what it is they translate. Does that make sense? My Bible opens with this heading. The Holy Bible containing the Old and New Testaments translated out of the original tongues, which of course means the original languages. Under the section, I don't know, do you have the translator to the reader in your Bible? If you don't, 
uh, you need to at least read it. You can get it for free online. I know if you buy through church publishers like I do, there's usually always a translators to the reader section in the very beginning. It's worthy of your read if you have it. And under the section there called Translation Necessary, they wrote this, quote, But how shall men meditate in that which they cannot understand? How shall they understand that which is kept close in an unknown tongue? End quote. So they use the phrase unknown tongue to mean an unlearned language. And as we heard tonight from Sister Williams, people want to hear in their own language. That's how we better, that's how we best learn, that's how we best process. And so it means an unlearned language, and that phrase, unknown tongue, is what is used in 1 Corinthians 14, which is what seems to cause so much of the debate today, but obviously the translators mean the phrase uh, to mean this, a language not learned before. And for what it's worth, in your King James Bible, any time a word was not in the original, you won't get these little good things with modern Bibles, but in the King James, if it wasn't in the original, it's italicized. And it's to let you know, the translators are letting you know, this wasn't here, but we put this in here for readability's sake. And so that word unknown, connected with tongues, is always italicized. It was never even part of the original. And so they're just letting us know, if you go back and read what they said about the translation... An unknown tongue was just an unlearned language. So there's no sense in making this mean something it doesn't. But listen, there's a lot of people caught up in the charismatic movement. Thankfully, there's been a lot of people come out going, well, if they had to teach me how to do that, I didn't really think it was a gift from God. But back to our text here in Acts chapter 2. These tongues being spoken, they're nothing more than languages, and these Galileans are now able by the power of the Holy Ghost to speak in a tongue or a language that before... They had not known. Now, just another quick observation here. This day of Pentecost is interesting when we view it in light of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11, 1 says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And over there in Genesis 11, they, they say in verse 4, all the people, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. They were attempting to reach heaven by their own works. That's not going to work for God. And so as they were attempting to work their way to heaven, God came down, took a look at the scene, and thought, well, that's enough, and He confounded their language. Remember that? The Tower of Babel, Babel, however you want to say that. Um, The babbling of languages. God confounded their language, and they were spread out, the Bible says, over all the face of the earth. But now here in Acts chapter 2, God brings people from all nations of different languages back together on the day of Pentecost. And it's all because of the the uniting work of the Holy Spirit. And we can learn from this that what we need is the unifying presence of the Holy Ghost in our church. If we want to have a better church, a better marriage, a better family then we must have the Holy Spirit's presence. That's where all you with good families say, Amen! Amen. So apparently only... And we can be assured that any time there are problems and divisions, there is a lack of the Holy Spirit's presence. A church will have issues and drama they shouldn't have to deal with when there's a lack of the Holy Spirit. Churches will become divided into groups and factions without the Holy Spirit's presence. 
And sadly today, many churches do not have the Holy Spirit's presence. They're divided. They're diminishing. They're in factions. They can't get along. There's infighting and backbitings. All because there's a lack of the Spirit. So who do you have an issue with tonight? It's a lack of the Holy Spirit. Now, when these believers were filled with the Holy Ghost, we know from verse 1 they were located in one place, and this place is called a house in verse 2. So I'm trying to picture this. I'm sure you do the same thing. I'm trying to picture this event unfolding here in chapter 2, and it would seem that they were inside somewhere when the Holy Ghost filled them because the Holy Ghost filled the house. Okay, even Georgia Public Education can figure that one out. Many suppose they were in the upper room when they were gathered in chapter, where they were gathered in chapter 1. Many suppose that just continued into chapter 2. But in verse 6, as this event is noised abroad, we see that a multitude has come together. It seems that this multitude has come to them because we don't read where these believers left where they were assembled at. But obviously... A crowd into the thousands could not have gathered into the upper room. Some have speculated the house where they were gathered at would have had a large enough courtyard around it that those who were coming to see this could just pack into this courtyard in the surrounding area and that this would accommodate such a large gathering. But then I came across an interesting theory that I never really considered before while studying this. And for some of, the, some of you may believe this. I don't care if you do or don't. But that is the possibility that these believers were actually already meeting at the temple when this event took place. The Jewish historian Josephus described rooms which surrounded the temple court which he called houses. And for what it's worth, the Greek word for house in verse 2 is also translated as temple in Luke 11.51. So it could be all of this is taking place at the temple. This certainly would have allowed for such a large multitude of thousands of people to gather around so quickly as this event is being noised abroad. And one might could use verse 46 to help support this position because it says that they continued in the temple. The idea being that they were in the temple when all this took place in chapter 2 and they just continued meeting at the temple. Well, the Bible never really says, so I won't never really says either. (laughs) But I think we can agree that if they were inside somewhere, then once they were filled with the Holy Ghost, they evidently were led to move outside somewhere. I don't know if you would agree with that, but I see that happening here. In order for all these thousands to hear them speak in these tongues... They would have to, if, even if they were in the upper room, they would have had to have left that in order for them to hear what is being said and for such a large multitude to gather around. If 3,000 are being saved, how many didn't receive it but still heard? We're talking a large crowd this day that has gathered around to hear what is taking place. And I'm saying all this to tell you this. What we can learn from this powerful working of the Spirit is that when God is supernaturally at work, we are not meant to keep it within the walls of this church facility. But we are to go out and we are to preach and we are to give the Word of God. It is not just so we can have a really good church service up in here. 
But it's so that we can go out to the lost and we can tell them. We can preach to them. We can witness to them. We're to herald this publicly. Let's not forget the reason why they needed to be endued with power from on high. Acts chapter 1 says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Why did they need to be empowered? They needed to be witnesses. They weren't just to keep it within the church. This outpouring of the Holy Ghost wasn't for them to have some strangely energized church service where it was just for the saints and it was closed off from the rest of the world, but it was for them to be empowered to preach effectively to the lost located outside of the walls of where they were gathered. Now, I want to try and help somebody right here. When you see a religion steeped in secrecy, beware. Secrecy does not line up with the Bible. Jesus said in John 18.20, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why do the Jehovah's Witnesses close up their windows? Why do the Mormons have portion of their temple worship kept secret? And this they admit even on their own websites. Why are the Masons so secretive? If you come across a religion shrouded in secrecy, stay away from it. Because it isn't right biblically. I don't know who's in the Masons and who isn't, and who's in the Order of the Eastern Star and who isn't. But if you're in that mess, you're wrong. If someone tries to convince you of some sort of secrecy in so-called Christianity, then right there you know something's up. Matthew 24, 26, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. And then listen to this. Behold, he's in the secret chambers. Believe it not. Jesus said, I'm not going to be found in the secret chambers. I'm open. I'm preached out there. All the world can see what I've preached and what I've taught and where I've gone. God made it clear we're to reach others for Christ. Not secretly, but openly. And so we're to speak openly to the world and speak nothing in secret. Mark 4, 21-22. And He said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick? For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested. Neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. Jesus said, look, you, you've got to open your mouth and talk. Amen. Lifestyle evangelism. No, you've got to open your mouth and talk. Listen, we're not in China somewhere. We still have freedoms. There's nothing to be done here in secret. We've not been driven underground. The day may come. Like it is in several countries. And when that happens, we do what we got to do. I'm talking about us tonight. We're not to become some secretive group with cult-like overtones. We're to broadcast the Word of God far and wide. We're to go into all nations. We're to go into the highways and hedges. We are to shout it from the housetops. We're to be witnesses in all the world. And we're to be like John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, who was crying out in the wilderness. We're to be like the prophets of old who preached openly in the cities. We're to be like Jesus and the apostles who preached to all who would listen to them everywhere they went. Matthew 10, 27, What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what you hear in the ear... That preach ye upon the housetops. 
We're to preach where all can hear. We're to preach openly. We, we preach to all and we, we have nothing to hide from the outside world. Yeah, we have to keep some things sacred, like the Lord's table. But we don't do that in secret. I don't care who watches that. It's a chance for me to give them the gospel. Proverbs 1, verses 20 through 23. Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates. In the city she uttereth her words, saying, How long, ye simple ones, will you love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Proverbs 8, verses 1 through 4. Doth not wisdom cry? And understanding put forth her voice. She standeth in the top of the high places. By the way, in the places of the past, she crieth at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming in at the doors. Unto you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of man. In Acts chapter 5, verse 20, uh, Peter was told, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Acts 17, 17, Therefore disputed he, uh, this is speaking of Paul, Therefore disputed he in the synagogues with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Amen. Openly proclaiming the word of God. Now, lest you think there's a contradiction from what we heard earlier tonight, I would just tell you this. Jesus was clear. If you're persecuted in one city, go to another. Even Jesus said, I'm not going to walk any more openly in Jewry because they're seeking to kill me. But what do we have to fear here in America? Well, they may not like me. Well, join the club, amen? I got church people that don't like me. And so what we learn from this is when God is at work among us, we don't keep it to ourselves. But it prompts us to go out to the lost and cry aloud in the chief places of concourse. And then there are truly unique situations like we see here in this chapter, and I would love to see at some point in my lifetime, and that is where God is so at work that people come and seek out the believers. You see, our job is to go seek out the lost, but there are times when God is so at work... And I've, I've heard the testimony, you probably have too, around 1950 when revival broke out in the Hebrides and people were being led of a power greater than themselves to seek out believers. They were showing up at church at 11, 12 o'clock at night. Nobody invited them. Nobody went and got them. They just showed up. God was at work. And I, and I, I love those testimonies. And man, I wish I could see that at least once in my life. Now, it's great here in verse 10, this, this miraculous event reached more than just the devout Jews by birth. We see that proselytes were hearing this message as well. The proselytes were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. And in verse 11, we see that all these present were hearing these unlearned Galileans speak to them the wonderful works of God. From this, we can conclude that being Spirit-filled ultimately it's not about being able to speak in some unknown tongue. It's not about falling out in a church service and shaking uncontrollably, being led into some trance. It's not about dancing around. Amen, Brother Long? If you've never seen Brother Long do the holy dance, you just haven't lived yet. It's not about laughing uncontrollably. It's not about barking out loud. Yes, there's actually been revivals called barking revivals. And laughing revivals. 
I mean, it's nonsense what's going on out there, but I can tell you that none of that is of the Holy Ghost. Being filled with the Holy Spirit will lead people to coherently testify about the wonderful works of God. They'll preach Christ and Him crucified. And I'll tell you, that's what, that's what we need to do tonight. We don't need to talk about how greatly we think God may be using us. Well, did you hear I got baptized in the Spirit? Let me show you. I can now speak in a tongue. And that's not being led of the Spirit. We don't have to talk about how great we think we are. We don't have to talk about how great uh, we think we are now that we've been filled. Now, let me give you a hint right there. Spoil alert. If you're doing that, you're not filled. All we need to do is focus on how great our God is and how wonderful His work of salvation is. So i got to ask you, how's your preaching to the lost tonight? Do you emphasize God's work and their need for Christ? You hear me say it often, but don't get sidetracked with tertiary issues. Don't go down those roads. They need Christ. Stay focused on the main thing. You say, what's the main thing? The main thing is they need Christ or else they're going to spend an eternity in a devil's hell forever separated from God. They're going to die in their sins. But that Christ came and gave His life for them to be redeemed. The main thing isn't that we enjoy each other's company in here. And, and boy, it would really be good if you had come to our church. You're really going to like it. That's not the main thing. But I hope that's true. I mean, I hope you like coming to church. I, I hope you got some folks here you like to hang out with. The main thing isn't political issues. Oh, dang. I watch Fox News all day. I thought that's what it was going to be. No. Listen, that's not the main thing. It's not about social issues. But the main thing is that we need Christ. We speak to them the wonderful works of God, that He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, became sin for us, shed His blood for the remission of our sins. He was buried, rose again, and that uh, He ascended back on high victoriously. And, and if you don't think you have a whole lot to say, then all I can tell you is if you'll preach the wonderful works of God, the Bible says that you'll never run out of stuff to say. Let me tell you what Psalm 40 and verse 5 says. Many, O Lord, my God, are Thy wonderful works which Thou hast done, and Thy thoughts which are to us word. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto Thee. If I would declare and speak them, they are more than can be numbered. Whoop! You say, I don't know what to say. You speak the wonderful works of God. Well, I just don't have a whole lot of wonderful works of God. Psalm 26, verse 7, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. Psalm 71, 17, O God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared thy wondrous works. Psalm 96, verses 3 and 4, declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised, for he is to be feared above all gods. Psalm 107 and verse 8, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. That's what we're to do. What does it look to be Spirit-filled? It looks like we're talking about the wonderful works of God. So as we consider a church in action, that's the whole point of this series, as we consider what that looks like, can we say tonight that we are a Spirit-filled church? Are there any nonsense issues being dealt with because of someone's immaturity? Are we dealing with unneeded drama? Listen, I'm not talking about real-world situations that come up that we have to deal with and help people along. Fine with that. Amen? I'm talking about, well, did you see what she had on? You see, Pastor had one of those ties from 30 years ago, and it's still really wide at the bottom. Why can't he dress more like Ken? 
Are we taking the message outside of the walls of this church facility? We aren't meant to keep it all in here. Now, I love when we have church. Amen? I do. I love our church services. I love our song service. I, I even love the preaching. <laughs> that was terrible. But we need to go out into the community testifying of the wonderful works of God. And when we have the Spirit upon us, there's not going to be all this fear. I'm not saying there won't be some fear, but you'll overcome that fear. Are we preaching Christ to the lost? Are we staying on target? Our theme this year is fill Jerusalem with our doctrine. Are you helping with that? I've made that about as easy as I possibly can. Take a church card and hand it out. Are we a church in action? Let's pray.